Hello, and welcome to episode 89 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfor-Stewart. I want to start today by saying thank you to everyone who has written a review of the show or has left a rating. I was just reading through them, and my heart was just warmed to see all of the incredible things that you all had to say about the show and how much you are learning and how it's helping you be a better manager. And I know that all of the people who are finding the show because of you when they're looking at the ratings and reading the reviews and considering whether they should give the show a try, well, they and their teams are really the ones who are benefiting. So thank you for helping to create more thriving teams and more rockstar managers in the world. If you haven't yet left a rating or a review, why not do it now or when the episode ends and be part of making more great managers in the world? It is one of the best ways you can support the show. And if you really want to go big, send an episode to a friend or a colleague and encourage them to listen. We have covered so many topics over the past almost two years. So pick your favorite episode or the one that you think will resonate with the other person and send it over to them. They and their team will be thankful. Now, today's guest is Jennifer Brown. Jennifer is a leading diversity and inclusion expert, dynamic keynote speaker, best-selling author, award-winning entrepreneur, and host of the Will to Change podcast, which uncovers true stories of diversity and inclusion. As the founder, president, and CEO of Jennifer Brown Consulting, her workplace strategies have been employed by some of the world's top Fortune 500 companies and nonprofits to help employees bring their full selves to work and feel welcomed, valued, respected, and heard. Jennifer and I talk about what diversity and inclusion really means and the personal journey of engaging and being a more inclusive leader, what you can do to support your learning journey, and a whole lot more. And you will hear about my own learning journey when it comes to implicit bias and being an inclusive leader, because this is deep and challenging work, and it is so important. And as you'll hear me say at the end, if we are unwilling to be vulnerable in this, how can we ask our colleagues to? Now, here is the conversation. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now, here's your host, Mamie Canfor-Stewart. Jennifer, it is such a pleasure to have you here today. I am really looking forward to talking with you about diversity and inclusion because it's something that has been on my mind a lot in some of the volunteer work I do, and I've been reading your book and learning a ton, and I just I can't wait for everyone else to learn from you as well. Oh, thank you, Mimi. I'm so really happy to be here. I can't wait for this conversation. <laughs> All right, so let's jump right in. And, you know, we've hopefully all heard the stats on how diverse thinking, you know, gives teams better decision making and, you know, all that good stuff. And of course, diversity is the right thing to do and inclusion and all that good stuff. But we all talk about it, but it's actually really hard. Why is it so hard? Oh, gosh, I think that it requires almost building a new muscle, like seeing everyday situations in the workplace through a particular lens. And, you know, it's not as easy as like putting on a pair of glasses. I wish it were. But it is noticing your behaviors and your choices, for example, and maybe your assumptions and stereotypes and yes, unconscious biases come up in the workplace and making a commitment to not only see them, but to perhaps make different decisions when you do see them. 
And that's the inner work that we have to do. I mean, I personally see this as part of any leader's work in terms of honing their leadership skills and honing their managerial skills. And so it's just a part of, I think, succeeding in today's workplace, right? It's, this is a thing. We know it's a thing. You know, we've been told that unconscious bias derails a lot of potential in our workplaces. And I don't think anybody wants that for themselves or others. But we know that it's pervasive. It's sort of in the water. And so I think the hard part perhaps is assuming that, oh, I'm perfect or I'm well-intended or I'm a good person. Therefore, I don't have biases. Like, (laughs) I'm totally an inclusive leader. I don't need to read Jennifer's book. (laughs) I mean, you know, P.S., everybody really should read the book, including me. I mean, I do this for a living and there are biases I still notice in myself. There are things that I have to be given feedback on. There are things that I'm still developing and I look at this all day, every day. So just because you're well-intended and you do believe in generally in equality and you would hate to consider yourself somebody that's biased, particularly around race and ethnicity or gender or sexual orientation or gender identity and the list goes on and on, we all are very hardwired in our society and we are socialized to look at things through a biased lens. So if we can acknowledge that, then I think it opens up a lot of possibilities to watch ourselves in action, being colleagues, being friends, being parents, being community members, being executives. And we can start to notice, you know, hmm, I wonder if my bias is getting in the way of this hiring decision, or I wonder why I didn't notice that there were no women in that meeting or at that, you know, in that candidate slate. I wonder, you know, why do we say that a woman, a strong woman and a strong man, you know, the strong woman is aggressive and the strong man is assertive. Like you start to notice these things and you start to sensitize yourself to them. And then you, you have that decision then to make to say, I'm, I'm not going to participate in that. And I'm going to try to make different choices. And I'm going to then sort of ultimately down the road, you can be one of those people that actually spots it around you and gives that feedback to others. And that's really where I think we get to see real scalable change on this is when we start to be a voice for that, not just for ourselves, but when we see it happening around us. So I want to get into this journey, this continuum that you outlined. But before we go there, first, I want to say, I completely agree that one of the things that is so hard is that it's actually about being really honest with ourselves and admitting yes. to ourselves that we are <laughs> not perfect, even though right. we like to think we are. And I know do. <laughs> I had a huge eye-opening moment for myself when I realized that I had made some statements that I thought to be completely true were and found out that I had made significant assumptions about the people in the room and in in a way that was actually quite offensive and mm-hmm. got called out on it and was like, holy moly, <laughs> I had no idea that I was even making that kind of assumption that that or like it just was so natural to me to think that way. So getting out of your own way and starting to say, okay. Like I am on a journey. I need to recognize that I am not perfect. I make assumptions and it's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just how I've been raised. It's my own experiences. It's the world I live in or the water I swim in and getting more self-aware and willing to start to look at yourself and see your own biases. It's just hard. 
Yes, it is so hard. And and I think for those of us that are surprised by the things that offend other people and we're sort of stumbling into it, we really, really need to be applying more time and attention to our own learning. You know, pay attention to the media you consume. Make sure that you understand the statistics and the research, which is plentiful, by the way, on how bias impacts and derails certain communities of identity. And, you know, understand what the pay gap is, you know, understand how kind of endemic a lot of these things are to the way that business has been really built, which we like to say in my world, the business world was built by and for and to work for a very small subset of us. <laughs> that subset is largely male, maybe with a partner at home, right? And largely white. And like, that's the leadership that we still see in many, most companies, actually. We see more, way more diversity in the lower and the middle parts of organizations. But as you look up the chain, it thins out considerably. And so that's a reminder to us that we are endeavoring to create a better experience for ourselves and others in a workplace that really wasn't built by and for us. It wasn't built to work for a variety of people. And so we've got kind of a lot of bias actually hardwired into the systems. <laughs> and then when you have a bunch of leaders who, who sort of don't see things happening as they're happening, it literally just perpetuates it. And so, so it's up to each of us, I think, not waiting for the diversity team to make changes or not waiting for it to be required in order to pay attention to it. The real opportunity for us is to grow as individuals and to do things large and small, like making sure we are putting ourselves, for example, in situations where we are the only one of our identity on a regular basis. I mean, how often do we, how often do we look for opportunities to do that? And how often do you feel that you're the only one in a room that, you know, looks like you, right? I mean, some of us, if we're women in business, we're often in a sea of male colleagues. So women might know what that's like. But if you're a white person, you know, what would it feel like to be the only white person in an in a affinity group meeting? with your black employee network, for example. So part of the work is seeking out that discomfort that by the way, so many other people are feeling that discomfort like every day, multiple times a day. And so the, it's really incumbent on some of us who are relatively more comfortable because our, our culture around us represents us. It's more incumbent on us to start to say like, hey, I need to step out of my own cultural knowledge and experience and really learn about others so that I can be a more empathic leader and I can also be a more inclusive leader because you've got to acknowledge that people are having very different experiences in the exact same environment. Now, you've got to acknowledge that. And I don't know if many people would be able to answer that if I asked them, you know, do you think your workplace feels welcoming and that everybody feels they can reach their full potential here and they feel that they belong? I think a lot of people would say, sure they do. Everybody, I feel great. Everybody feels great. Or, you know, maybe they're like, oh yeah, women, we have tons of women here. Like women feel very comfortable at this company. You know, and then I'm the consultant and I come in and I do the focus group feedback and I do the data collection and it tells a very different story. So it's that shock of the truth that we have to jump into and not avoid and actually be very curious about and acknowledge that it's, it exists. And then the question is, well, what do you want to do about it? So why don't we walk through those kind of four phases that you outline in the book that I think were a really nice depiction of the journey that I've been on. And I would imagine it'll be really helpful for other people to understand how to kind of move through these various phases. 
Yes. Thank you for asking about that. Yeah. I'm a, ever a consultant, so I love models. So I built a model for the book and it originally was called the Ally Continuum. And I renamed it Inclusive Leader Continuum because the word ally, we use that a lot in our conversations, but I didn't think it was more of a broadly understood word. But it is a continuum. It has four stages, as you mentioned. The first is unaware. So those folks in unaware, phase one, don't think there's a problem. So they think life is a meritocracy. Or they may say, you know what, diversity doesn't have anything to do with me. Like I don't know anything about it and I don't need to really be involved or do any personal work. I'm sort of going to wait for it to be required of me. So for example, send everybody to unconscious bias training because I have to, but I really don't understand what the point is. And, you know, I just do the bare minimum. Also, I would say an unaware is the well-intended amongst us. I'd say to be well-intended and think that intent is the same as impact to me means that you're asleep, unaware, apathetic, you know, you just don't understand that you might have a role and you don't really know what problem we're trying to solve. And unaware can be also resistant. I meet people occasionally. It's not, I don't think it's super widespread, but I do meet people who are like, extending more opportunity to people means less opportunity for me, right? And I, I don't meet a lot of people like that, but we do have that conversation around, well, you know, what's going to be left for me? if I embrace more diversity, you know, it's sort of that selfish way of looking at their zero sum game, which is not, diversity is not pie. There's not a finite number of slices. <laughs> it's an ever expanding pie. So that's unaware. And then aware is that phase two, where we can move to once we do acknowledge that some people are having a very different experience, a, a le- an experience of less belonging because of their identities, visible and invisible. And that many people are not bringing their full selves to work. And when you're in aware, you're curious, you're reading, you're digesting information, you're seeking information, you're trying to, as I was talking about, put yourself into places and expose yourself to other experiences and identities that are different than your own. You're thinking about like, what don't I know and where can I learn it? And it's just literally like, how much can I gather and how, you know, how can I ask people about their experience? of the same perhaps workplace that I'm in, but heretofore, I didn't really know that they would be struggling so much. And I look at this data all the time, so I can tell your listeners it's true. I'm an LGBTQ woman as well, and half of us in the LGBTQ community are closeted at work. So just to give one example of one identity, we are literally lying about who we are and who we love every day. And half of us are doing that. So when you think that everybody's bringing their full self to work and like, what's the big deal? That's the piece where you have to like really reconcile the facts against your belief that you're a great manager, you've got it figured out, you're inclusive because you're just a good good leader in general. It's bigger than that. Can you talk a little bit about and expand on what forms of diversity we're really talking about because I think, you know, gender and race are relatively obvious, yes. but it's not always obvious, right? And right. to your point, I think there are probably some people who it wouldn't have even occurred to them that they would have closeted people on their team who didn't feel comfortable talking about their partner, but that's actually real. So not everything is so obvious. That's right. So what you're talking about is visible and invisible diversity. And You could argue, actually, there's way more invisible diversities. The visible ones might be gender, although, by the way, you may be looking at somebody and assuming their gender, but you actually don't know how they identify. 
right? So even gender, sort of what appears to you as male or female is informed by your lens of what male and female actually looks like, right? That normative definition. And this is why more and more it's important people are starting to share their pronouns in their email signature and in, you know, opening remarks or meetings. They say, my name is Jennifer Brown. I'm really glad to have you all here today. My pronouns are she, her, hers, you know, and let's get to the business of the day. That is a way to be inclusive around all kinds of gender identities that may be in the room, but may be invisible to you. So it's just one example. There's all kinds of other invisible diversities like disabilities. Um, Many disabilities are hidden and not visible. Sexual orientation obviously is um, not apparent often. And uh, mental health issues is a big topic that's coming up that people are struggling with being neurodiverse. So neurodiversity is being on the autism spectrum, for example, is one example of ways that people are neurodiverse. And that's something that is deeply, deeply not talked about in companies, unless the company is all about hiring neurodiverse people, which actually I know a couple tech companies that are 80% folks on the spectrum, which is fascinating. So there's veteran status. A lot of people are closeted about having been in the military because of the stereotypes that sharing that might trigger age-based covering. There's so many different things. So a lot of people are hiding a lot of things and minimizing a lot of things and just not conveniently not speaking about them in the workplace because there's such a narrow version of a leader that we see that we think is acceptable. And so we therefore look at that and we say, well, I can't bring my full self to work because there's no one that shares my story here. Or we assume there's nobody because we don't see anyone sharing it. Even though, by the way, it's, it's everywhere. <laughs> it's pervasive. And I can promise you there's other people who, you know, share your identities, plural, but that if we don't normalize bringing our full selves to work and truly sort of sharing these stories and these truths about ourselves that are so important to us, you know, we will never actually change the culture. So I often just do an exercise. I, I put a big list up of all these identities and I have leaders in my room choose one that they feel they're in this sort of unaware and aware phase in terms of their own knowledge. And I have them commit to some actions they could take to learn more about those identities. And that is the building block of becoming a more inclusive leader is basically saying, okay, so whose experience don't I know about at all? Like at all. I mean, if you don't know what LGBTQ plus means and you don't know that 50% of us are closeted, that might be a great place to start in terms of making sure you're watching, I don't know, a show like Pose, for example, would teach you all kinds of things about a certain part of the community and the extent to which the community is under siege at any given time. Just an example, um, you may want to read McKinsey's Women in the Workplace research, which ca- talks about what derails women and then also women of color, which is same and different than white women. Very important to know. If you think all women are experiencing the same, that's where you have some learning to do. So it's great research. They refresh it every year. I would dive into that. I would listen to podcasts that aren't produced and hosted by people of your identity and just be a listener, you know, just, just pick up what you can and start to expose yourself to the issues and challenges that are being experienced by certain people, because all of this equips you to be a more empathetic 
leader and colleague. And you will also pick up on the biases that are happening and it will equip you to spot them when they're happening in yourself and others and equip you to know sort of what to say as an ally, as somebody who, you know, doesn't want to let that stand. So let's kind of continue on this spectrum of kind of journey or growth or continuum. So you go from unaware to aware and then what's next? Yes. And then once you're aware and you've learned and you're still learning and you're sort of the journey, you know, is not a destination. It's a journey. I'm still learning. I'm still in phase two about a lot of things myself. Like I'm trying to learn more about the community of disabilities and the neurodiverse community and veterans experience. And so I'm literally there also. So we move from aware to active. So active is phase three. Active is where you choose to do something with your knowledge. It's where you activate. It's where you decide to start to use new language, for example, that you're learning. It's where you start to practice putting this into the world. This is really where the rubber hits the road. It's, it's so important to activate. And yet it comes with some risk because there's a lot of fear, for example, of saying the wrong thing, of intruding, wanting to be seen as an ally, but kind of misapplying it or not having your impact match your intent, as we say. And in active, you need feedback because you're not going to know what you don't know, but you're trying to exercise a new muscle. And in doing so, that muscle is going to be a little sore because you're pushing yourself, right? And so you've got to deal with not always doing things perfectly, trying things and not having them resonate. You may stumble and you may need to apologize, which is totally par for the course. The important thing is that you are actually out there exercising that muscle, right? That you are getting that practice, you're strengthening yourself and your voice, you're broadening your language so that it's more inclusive, you're challenging yourself to be in uncomfortable situations, knowing that so many others around you are uncomfortable on a regular basis. You know, you are trying to speak up, however imperfectly, and you're taking more risk and you're being more public about your journey. And so those are some of the hallmarks of that stage. And you know, my best advice is it's going to feel awkward. It's going to feel new. It's going to not always go smoothly. And it's really important to get feedback and have that kind of board of advisors, if you will, who have your back and who, with whom you've built trusted relationships. So somebody can come to you and say, like you just shared, maybe like, I don't know how you found out that you made a blunder, but somebody's got to have your back enough to come to you and you need to take feedback graciously and not be fragile about it and not take your marbles and go home and say, oh, this allyship thing is for the birds. I'm not going to try it anymore. You have to be able to receive the feedback too. But you know, you need people who believe in you and say, hey, I just want to let you know when you said that, that's a stereotype or that's a microaggression. Or you, know, you said this and I, maybe this is what you intended, but this was the impact on me or on somebody else in the room or whatever. So that back and forth is ideally what happens in active. So first of all, it's funny that you say like, I'm not going to take my marbles and go home because that was the exact reaction I have was like, oh, well, then I guess I'm just not going to talk anymore oh, no. because I, I don't want to offend anyone. Of course. And thank goodness I had a trusted ally who said when I said that to her was the act of not engaging in and of itself is part of the problem, right? Your unwillingness right. to take the risk to learn right. means that you're going to let the status quo continue. That's on. right. That's right. And that was so helpful for me to hear from somebody who I trusted to hear that I have to go through this. No one can do it for me. And the right. only way to learn is to 
be active, is to try things, is to learn from your experiences and to have somebody or multiple people who can help you understand. And from a very practical perspective, also one of the norms that we implemented on our team was called ouch and oops, because we had this initial concept of assume best intention. And I've used that norm for years with teams I facilitate and then learned that assuming best intention actually doesn't help people grow because the whole point is like, well, assume that they meant something good, but you don't have to say anything. And when we switch to this idea of ouch, what you said didn't land well for me and this is why you're teaching and helping the other person grow. And the other person has the opportunity to say, oops, I'm sorry, that's not how I intended it. Thank you for helping me learn. And it builds bonds and builds relationships and actually moves everybody forward. That's right. That's so well said. There's a real great book for not just white people to read. I think everybody should read it, but particularly for white people who want to work on this. It's called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And it may be a hard read for a lot of us, but it is a real eye-opener in terms of sitting with that discomfort of having not perceived something or having said the wrong thing and staying in the conversation and doing so with grace and patience for yourself. Because when you read that book, you realize how it literally is in the water. And so it's actually the unusual white person who's aware of the dynamics of whiteness in our society. I mean, it's, it's rare because it's the water we're in. And so to step out of it and actually see it for what it is and see the harm that's propagated within that system and that we might have been unwittingly participating in by not saying anything or letting somebody off the hook or whatever, taking our marbles and going home. You're right that it actually is incumbent on a lot of us to do much more work than we've done in the past because, you know, it's so comfortable and easy to be in a majority group. And, you know, funny enough, major I say majority, but actually the U.S. Is, will be very soon a minority majority country. And so even those words don't really have a lot of meaning, minority and majority, and I don't really like using minority in particular. But when we say majority in the workplace context, we typically are referring to those, that demographic who dominates the leadership positions in particular and in companies. And, you know, that is still very true. So... Anyway, we just have so much great work to do. It's such a wonderful opportunity. It's not going to be easy. We can't expect it to be easy or comfortable. And the most we can do is accept the feedback and seek out learning and challenge ourselves and not give all of the labor for change to those of us that are the least seen and heard. I think that's the big takeaway to me is that diversity and inclusion efforts and companies have traditionally been powered by diverse voices, by underrepresented voices, you know, by communities that are traditionally marginalized. And it's a lot of work. I mean, a lot of my friends are doing all of this as volunteers. You know, they're literally trying to be heard themselves. And they are trying to, at the same time, in addition to their day jobs, trying to shift an entire organization so that it can be more empathetic, it can be more aware of its own biases. And people love the work and it's very passionate, it's very personal. But I worry about burnout for those of us who have been pushing, pushing, pushing for so long and are sort of experiencing those microaggressions on a personal level every day and being the sort of one person that's always asked, you know, to lead things. And, you know, I just see a lot of white, cis, straight male folks sitting on the sidelines, not participating. So I think that that balance really needs to be created. And I think we'll look back and we'll say, 
wow, you know, we really needed to shift the burden and the responsibility and really the opportunity actually to everyone and figure out how can we all contribute to shifting our workplace culture to be more one of belonging? Because if a few of us are trying to do it, it's not effective and it's very, very tiring and frustrating and ultimately causes, frankly, a lot of people to leave organizations because they're just like, I've had it. You know, I've had it. I don't want to be the only one in the room anymore. I don't want to be always the one that has to, you know, hold the organization accountable or always speak up or always be the one token that's invited to certain meetings so that somebody can check a box somewhere. You know, it's, it's tiring and it's frustrating and it's bad for brands. I mean, it's really bad for business. <laughs> so just knowing that that's happening, I hope kind of stirs your listeners to say, wow, like, I don't know that that's happening. I need to know more about that. And then what can I do to alleviate that burden that many, many people are feeling and that I'm not feeling? How can so I share in that? So let's actually just touch on that really briefly. So, you know, what do I do if I now have some sense of where I'm at and I want to be part of the solution, I want to be part of the change? How do I get my colleagues, my team, my leadership, how do I help them start to recognize that this needs to be owned by everyone or at least that they need to start their own journey? Yeah, that's right where I'm sitting right now. That's why I wrote the book because I hoped that people could take the assessment that comes along with the book to understand where they are in the journey. So I'd really recommend people take that. It's at inclusiveleaderthebook.com. It's free. So that self-awareness is, I think, that first stage. And I would do that as teams. I would do it as book clubs, have everybody read the book and other books on bias too. I mean, there's so many other ones like Blind Spot is a really famous one by Dr. Banaji out of Harvard. I would have everybody take the Harvard Implicit Association Test. It's called the IAT, very famous. It's been around forever so that they can start to really reconcile their own biases because that's the first step. Like you really need to understand how, what you don't see in yourself. You've got to do that. Otherwise, I don't think you're going to have the appetite for change. And then I think storytelling for those of us who um, can talk about our diverse dimensions, particularly those that are you know, invisible, the more that we have the courage to surface those, I think the more we have an opportunity to create aha moments. And I would say, you know, every, every one of us has hid, hidden aspects of diversity that we don't bring to work. And so just to look at a group that looks like cisgender, you know, white men, there is a lot of diversity happening in those groups as well. It's just maybe different kinds of diversity and different dynamics. But when I ask groups to participate in sort of what they keep under their waterline and what they don't bring to work, there is never a person that doesn't have something to share. So I think we do need to broaden our conception of what diversity means. We need to talk about those invisible aspects also and be inclusive of that. And then we have to encourage all of us to bring more of our full selves to work and be courageous and share you know, what's going on for us, whether that's mental health, whether it's, oh, you know, I'm in a mixed race marriage and my kids don't look like me, you know, so people don't think I'm related to them. Or my daughter just came out to me as trans and he wants to be called by a male name and male pronouns now. There's so much closeted behavior that's going on in the workplace that, again, like we just don't think it exists. And it does exist. So we've got to be courageous. We've got to tell our stories. We have to create safe space for storytelling and vulnerable storytelling. Amazing. I'm taking a page from Brene Brown, right? The vulnerability is literally like the new competency for leadership. 
And this is all about that. It's taking that leap of faith that if you do share who you are, you will be met with a community of people who are so grateful that you were courageous enough to talk about more of who you are. And I think that that will create kind of a momentum. Absolutely. And I think to your point, role modeling and, you know, as the manager, as the kind of leader, like if you're not willing to take those kinds of risks, it's impossible to ask your team to do it. So you have to start with you. Mm -hmm. All right. Where can people learn more about you and keep up with you? Thank you. Uh, So I've got two books out now. The first one's called Inclusion and it was from 2017. And then this next one that we've been talking about today is called How to Be an Inclusive Leader. It just came out three months ago, August, 2019. And I have a podcast called The Will to Change, which I encourage everybody to give a listen to. Then I'm on social a lot. So you can find me on Twitter at Jennifer Brown, on Instagram at Jennifer Brown Speaks. And I'm on Facebook and LinkedIn under Jennifer Brown Consulting. And I'm very active sharing a lot of stuff there. I'd also encourage folks to join our mailing list if you want to hear and see where I'm presenting and speaking and get the latest on new programs that we're offering as a company. So please visit us at jenniferbrownspeaks.com and you can join the mailing list there. Yeah. And that free assessment I mentioned, I want to mention the URL again. It's also at inclusiveleaderthebook.com. And I'd encourage everybody to pick up a copy of the book and take the assessment and start your learning process. And there's always more that can be learned, even for those of us that sort of consider ourselves fairly competent on all of this. There's no such thing as, you know, having arrived, but that it's a journey and it's a, it's a lovely, amazing journey. I mean, it's nothing that I don't enjoy because learning about people and what would allow them to thrive and what I could do that is, to enable that is like the journey of a lifetime. So I hope your listeners feel the same. Thank you so much, Jennifer. All those links will be in the show notes so everyone will be able to find them easily. I really appreciate you sharing all of this wisdom and all of these great recommendations for how we can start our own process or move ourselves forward in it. Thank you so much. I could have talked to Jennifer for another two hours or two days. There was just so much that we can be learning and doing. So check out her book and the assessment. And if you are really excited about doing more of this work, register for Jennifer's six-week DEI Foundations course, which begins on March 10th. This course will equip you with the knowledge you need to meet the challenges of this changing world of work so you don't get left behind. And if you are a member of the Modern Manager community, you get 20% off of that course. To become a member, go to mamieks.com slash join. And you will find the discount code along with dozens of episode guides and other guest bonuses and access to the members-only Slack community where you can ask questions, share your advice, and support each other. All of the links are in the show notes and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter. Find that at mamieks.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. Please don't forget to write a review or leave a rating. That would mean so much to me. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration, and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. You're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team. I can tell. 
To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.